Before we begin today's episode, I want to tell you about my new show, The One Minute Preceptor Podcast. In this show, we interview preceptors from all walks of life, from rural medicine to busy hospital centers, from primary care specialties to a variety of subspecialties. We cover skill sets to look for in a good preceptor and clinical educator, as well as mistakes to be avoided. And for students, we cover how to best prepare for a rotation in every specialty, as well as ways to excel there and ask for letters of recommendation. If you're looking for a resource for your clinical education, then this is definitely a podcast for you. So go subscribe now to the One Minute Preceptor Podcast. Welcome to the Medical Menemist Podcast, your source for memory techniques and accelerated learning in higher education. Now, here's your host, Chase DeMarco. Dr. Daniel Sadawi Kanafka is a Harvard professor, program director of anesthesiology at MGH, and educational researcher with several published articles on the topics of self-directed learning and residency education. Today, we're going to focus on how to increase our study efficiency and utilize evidence-based study practices and self-directed learning. Dr. Sadawi Kanafka, how are you doing today? Oh, very well. Thank you very much. How are you? Uh, not too bad. I'm really glad that we're able to meet on this day and uh, discuss some of your research since I really love to get evidence-based research that is really geared towards medical students and residents and really help the audience to see what research has been done in this field and how they can improve their studies. So I think this is going to be a great interview. Sounds wonderful. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience in education and being a program director and sort of how that has shaped your research and your goals? Sure. Um, I'll start maybe a little bit before that. So I, I've always been interested in education from an early age. I went into medical school with the standard things that I think a lot of people have done, teaching a lot of prep courses, and, and uh, the Princeton Review was one that I worked for. And I taught, you know, different places at a local university and in high school and so on and so forth. I, I did medical school. In medical school, I also looked after, uh, I, I went to, for a business degree. I got an MBA and got interested in change management. Then I finished anesthesia residency and did a critical care fellowship. And when I was thinking about what was going to be my next step, I was very interested in change management and education. And the natural overlap turned out to be sort of how do we shape learner behaviors to optimize their learning. And so self-directed learning, self-regulated learning has become the focus of, of what I look at. And it seems like that's an extremely important focus in medical school as more and more, it seems like students really need to know how to direct their education. Sometimes they're not really taught how to do that. They're just expected to already know by the time they get to that level in their education. Yeah, I think you're right on. And, and what's worse is I think we, we assume that people know what's best uh, in terms of what's the most effective, most evidence-based way to, to go about learning. I think a lot of times people get lucky and happen to do things that work out well for them by happenstance. But as you probably know, and as I'm guessing some of your uh, listeners know as well, a lot of these things are very counterintuitive. And the strategies that often produce the highest judgments of learning, the, wow, I think I really got this down. In actuality, if you look at how they end up performing, how much memory they actually have retained, they turn out to be the least effective. So a classic example there would be using something like retrieval doesn't give you a really high 
judgment of learning. You don't actually think you know it well as compared to something like rereading. You reread it and you say, yeah, I got this. But retrieval dominates rereading when it comes to long-term retention of material. It's not something that's taught in most curricula. Some people end up developing good habits, and that's wonderful. But it's too bad that we don't have a more dedicated focus on teaching how to learn. Yeah, and I don't think that most medical instructors are really aware of these either. So they're not necessarily going to be able to point out what mistakes students are making. So students ask their fellow students and then may or may not actually utilize or find something useful there and just kind of go from there. So it's hard to self-assess, I would think, in uh, something like this. Completely agree. And I think it uh, underscores the importance of uh, evidence-based education and trying to promulgate that to the masses as you are. Great. And I know we've covered in past episodes a little bit here and there for irretrievable practice, but when we're talking about self-directed learning, obviously that's going to be a part of it. Let's get a broad overview of what students should maybe focus on or avoid. So if they're setting up their self-directed learning, are there certain types of activities that they should definitely avoid doing and certain things they should definitely add into their schedule if they're not doing it currently? Are there tips and tricks to actually getting stuff done? I guess I'll I'll say just a little bit about self-regulated learning, self-directed learning. In general, self-regulation can be looked at so rules that you're imposing on yourself to achieve outcomes that you find desirable. And these aren't outcomes that are then driven by other people. So education is a very common one to think about with self-regulation because whether or not you engage with it, often it's it's just what is your drive to do it and uh, no one's going to necessarily force you to do it. So I think that people come with varying degrees of self-regulation. You have people who are incredibly gritty, who just, they plan to do something and they'll just get it done. That turns out to be the minority of people. Most of us, you know, we make plans, we set goals, and they may or may not come to fruition. I think this, you know, the classic set your New Year's resolution, how many of those actually are kept up after you know, a month or two? It's, it's very few. I think the thing to avoid would be simply setting goals, but not tending to them or not using evidence-based strategies to bolster them and make them more effective. And I guess some of that sounds counterproductive from the initial student perception that everyone else is probably utilizing these types of things. So I need to too, or maybe they're utilizing them more effectively than I am. But then also in the aspect that I would have thought using the best strategies for goal setting might've been up there as something to use. And it sounds like maybe you're saying that's not accurate. Well, so goal setting is not bad, you know, and goal setting is is somewhat predictive of subsequent behaviors, but it actually only predicts a small percentage of subsequent behavior if you set a goal. And when you actually take into account confounders like people's typical behaviors and their past performances, goal setting ends up predicting a very, very small, we're talking single digit percent prediction of uh, whether or not they're likely to follow through. Now, it is still a positive correlation. So setting goals is certainly better than nothing, but there are strategies that you can use to to make them more successful. To get into that a little bit, one of the things to talk about initially is what derails goals, and it tends to be habits. Habits are, are automated responses to situational cues. I'll give some examples. You know, I get home, uh, sit down on the couch and turn on the TV, or I wake up in the morning and maybe I check Facebook, or, you know, I'm walking along not doing anything. And instead of maybe going through some flashcards, I'm spending time doing other things. These are sort of habitual responses. You don't have to think about them. And that's what makes them so easy and also I guess, dangerous when it comes to self-regulation because there's no activation energy. It's all downhill. If you don't tend to yourself, that's the direction you'll go. 
And so you can have a goal that you set up initially, but if you don't tend to it or plan specifically to overcome obstacles or distractions, or when are you going to start working on your goals, habits are going to take over and all the things that you thought you might do, they won't happen. Now, a lot of times you can have external motivators. You know, I've got a big test coming up and that can be big enough driver to turn up the heat and get you to do what you set out to do. But uh, when we talk about lifelong learning and the development of expertise, those types of extrinsic motivators are not going to always be there. So setting up strategic goals that uh, are bolstered with specific plans on how you're going to enact those goals is much more effective. Sounds like maybe we need to focus a little more on reshaping our habits to some degree. I think that's, yeah, that's well put. This is an aside, um, and I I haven't done primary research on, on this in particular, but keeping your motivations pure. So people who are driven by intrinsic motivation, so the desire to learn something because it's fun or meaningful to them, those learning outcomes tend to be of higher quality than people who are learning for extrinsic reasons, things like tests. Uh, in particular, people who learn for tests tend to do just as good when it comes to fact-based learning, but uh, their outcomes are inferior when it comes to things like conceptual understanding, transfer, as compared with those who are learning, I'll call it, for the love of learning. So putting that aside, what can we do to fight habits? My research so far has focused primarily on one specific strategy from uh, cognitive psychology. Uh, It's known as mental contrasting with implementation intentions. The original work here was done by uh, two researchers, Peter Galwitzer and Gabrielle uh, Ettingen. It's really a phenomenal body of work. And to be completely honest, it just had such high return on uh, the amount of work that went into it. I I sort of cherry-picked it from cognitive psychology to try to study it in GME. And I was lucky enough to have Peter and Gabrielle agree to collaborate with me on uh, some work there. I just wanted to repeat that because that's a mouthful. So for the audience, that's mental contrasting with implementation intentions. It is a mouthful. You got it right. That's actually why uh, Peter and Gabrielle, uh, as they write about it for the non-researcher, they actually call it WOOP, W-O-O-P. That stands for Wish Outcome Obstacle Plan, and it, it describes the sequential steps to bolstering goal intentions to make them more successful. Do you have an example that we can use for the audience that maybe is an easy way to implement this in their own studies? Yeah. And uh, maybe what I'll do is uh, I'll describe the steps and then give an example that's not tied directly to learning. And and here's, here's why I say that. If I give a specific example for learning, what I found is that when I then have students do it on their own, they end up repeating the same obstacles or repeating the same plans. So if I give something that's maybe illustrates how to use it, but doesn't give a specific, then maybe people will reflect on it a little more deeply and come up with things that are more germane to their practice habits. So here's how it goes. It's wish outcome obstacle plan. So wish is is the idea of uh, finding something that's intrinsically meaningful to you. What is the wish? What is it that you want to do? So I want to learn more about this particular topic or that particular topic uh, and or I want to take myself to a certain level, but something that's meaningful. It's not extrinsically imposed. Outcome is to identify and then, for lack of a better word, fantasize about the best outcome that would come from achieving that goal. Obstacle is then to identify the single most critical inner obstacle, whatever it is that you are doing or that you're allowing to transpire, and then sort of dwelling on that. And then plan, you set up a strategic plan to overcome that obstacle and not overcome it at some later point, but overcome it in the moment, that the moment that it comes up. And so I'll give you an example here. Let's assume that we have a, uh, a girl named Abby 
She's eight years old. She's moved to a new neighborhood. And her goal is to have more friends. She finds she doesn't have very many friends and that bothers her quite a bit. So that's her wish. So the outcome, uh, you know, she'll think about what are all the different outcomes that would be good from this. Like maybe I'll go to more birthday parties. Maybe I'll feel like I belong more. Maybe I won't get picked last at recess. She'll go through all of the potential outcomes. She assumes that she, her wish has come true. She has more friends. What is the best, most meaningful outcome? And once she finds the one that is most meaningful to her, and as you reflect on this, it's typically not too hard to see. It's the one where you think like that happens and and you're filled with this. Oh, that actually feels amazing. Then Abby's going to start fantasizing about that and she'll picture that. Now, if you stop there, that's just fantasizing, positive thinking, so to speak. That actually is linked to decreased performance. People end up feeling a little satisfied, like they've gotten a little bit of what they want. So it's really important to not stop there and go to the next part, which is the obstacle. So now Abby's got to think, why is it that, that she's not achieving her goal? What is the critical obstacle that's getting in the way? And this is where it's very easy to blame external things. It, it would be very easy to, for her to say that the kids here aren't nice or But those aren't things that she actually has control over. And instead, we're looking for what's the critical inner obstacle. So it may be that when Abby has the opportunity to talk to someone, she shies away. Maybe she, instead of sitting with other kids at lunch, she goes to one of the empty tables. It could be something else. It could be that she wants to talk to them, but she can't actually in the moment think of anything that she would say. So she'll pick whichever one is the most critical obstacle for her. And then she'll dwell on that. And sort of for the sake of this example, let's say that it's she's shy. So when she has the opportunity to engage with other kids, she just doesn't. And uh, if you've picked a good inner obstacle, you should be able to identify the when and where this will next come up. So for Abby, this might be, well, I'll get on the bus and I'll see the empty seat next to someone else and I'll go sit somewhere next to somebody in, in an empty seat instead of engaging with the other kids. When you do this part well, this is the mental contrasting part. It's the best outcome contrasted with the critical inner obstacle. It actually feels pretty lousy. It's not going to make you feel really well because basically what you're doing is identifying the very obstacle that's completely under your control, that's stopping you from achieving the wish that you'd like to achieve and the outcomes that you could be otherwise getting. So the next step is the plan. And this is a very particular type of plan. It's called an implementation intention. So it's basically the intention of how you're going to implement it. And it takes the form as follows. It's if obstacle, then I will plan. So some action, some thought, something that I can do to overcome that obstacle. And this is important in the moment. So for Abby, her obstacle is she's going to be shy the next time she's on the bus or something. What can she do in that moment? If you think about it, we have to set up an automated behavior something that as soon as she's in that circumstance, she can trigger it like a, someone at a starting line just waiting for the gun to go off and there's the behavior. Right? And if you think about it, automated responses to situational cues, those are habits. So what we're trying to do with Abby right now is we're trying to establish a habit, set up an automated response to fight her habit. Her, her normal habit would just be go sit by herself, but she has to come up with an automated response to fight that. So for Abby, it might look as follows. Maybe she thinks that something she could do, it has to be realistic. Well, she could sit down next to someone on the school bus and talk about her lunchbox and what she has for lunch. She pictures this and she thinks, you know, I I probably could do that. I have some self-efficacy 
that that's something that's reasonable that I could do. And I think it'll help me achieve, make progress towards my goal. So when she comes across that as her response, her intended response to the situation, she puts together the entire plan. So it's if I'm feeling shy when I cut on the bus, then I will sit down next to someone and talk about my lunch. It's a very concrete plan. So this sounds very much like a self-behavioral conditioning trying to gear it towards your studies. That's exactly right. The research that Gabrielle has done shows that when you do things like this, it's impossible for people to think about the obstacles without thinking about the outcomes that they want to achieve. So these things become connected and it's impossible for them to think about the obstacles without thinking about the behaviors that they know they have triggered to overcome these obstacles. It also tends to be that that feeling bad after you've done the mental contrasting tends to leave people a little bit dissatisfied and energized. They feel like, you know what, I really do have to do something to overcome this. So if, if your goal is to increase the amount of time you spend studying, or if your goal is to use more retrieval as opposed to rereading, every time you engage in rereading or any every time that you engage in surfing the internet instead of doing your studies, that becomes a concrete signal to you. It's, it's very accessible in the moment and uh, it's hard to run from. You know, I think a lot of times people, they'll say, well, I'm studying, but they don't actually see the rereading as an obstacle getting in the way of them having more effective studying. Or they'll be shopping for someone else's birthday present online. And that's a good thing. It doesn't have a negative valence to it. But when they understand the when they're doing it and they say, well, gosh, this is actually getting in the way of this goal that I really want to achieve. It changes the valence on these behaviors that are otherwise, they appear kind of benign. So a common theme I seem to be finding in a a lot of these interviews through researchers, cognitive psychologists, is these simpler tasks such as rereading, it's easy and you feel accomplished after you reread it. So you're more likely to potentially implement that more frequently in the future and creating that bad habit. Whereas the ones that really make you stress and maybe not feel so good for a little bit, uh, whether it be deliberate practice or this whoop format or you kind of need that to grow out of your comfort zone and ultimately to grow in general. I agree. I think it is common that the easier things, well, they're easier and you tend to, if you're not thinking about them, default to them. I think where WHOOP really stands to help people is once you know that those are less effective, it helps change the valence on them so that you actually can get triggered in the moment to realize like, gosh, this is not as effective and I'm getting in my own way. Have you noticed a difference in the types of wishes set? So for instance, instead of a wish being, I want to score X on the next board exam, or even on this next block exam in class, maybe setting a smaller one, I want to study for this long or go through this many problems when I get home today, setting up smaller goals and having that more accomplished feeling from these little goals. That seems to be something I hear about habit setting is uh, the smaller ones are more fulfilling and easier to make consistent. Yeah, I think, you know, proximate goals to sort of feel some success or see some some success of what you're doing are very helpful and they can help to establish things that, to sort of replace habits with better habits. WHOOP has been used in studies where they don't really dictate that. They just give it to people as sort of self-directed study tools or not study, I guess. So for example, Gabrielle, one of her studies, they took uh, women aged uh, 35 to 55 and they told them about all the, the benefits of eating more fruits and vegetables. And one group was randomized to an education intervention. So two hours of education on this is why it's so important to eat more fruits and vegetables. 
And the other group was randomized to smaller dose of education, but a lot of time on WHOOP. They were matched for time, two hours. And they followed these women for two years. And these women kept daily diaries of how many fruits and vegetables they were eating. Now, it, after the initial intervention, both groups ate more fruits and vegetables. And that was a significant from baseline. And there was no difference between the two groups. But after four months, the groups diverged. And the WHOOP group was still eating more fruits and vegetables. They'd been taught to use this as a routine thing. So they use WHOOP daily or weekly, whereas the education group were just, these were the set some goals. And by two years, the WHOOP group was still going strong with their goals, whereas the, the comparator group was back to their baseline fruit and vegetable consumption. So I think that the proximate goals can be useful for setting up habits, but WHOOP seems to, as long as you're able to incorporate in your routine, seems to be able to produce long-term results without as much a need for that. That study, if uh, anyone wants to look it up, the first author's name is uh, Stadler, S-T-A-D-L-E-R, and it was published somewhere in the 20-teens. We've actually studied this in medical education as well. Chase, do you think, would it be helpful for me to describe a study that we've done? I definitely think it would, yes. So we took a small number of anesthesia residents on their ICU rotations, and we cluster randomized them to one of two conditions. Before we randomized them, we had a week of baseline data that we gathered. And by the way, we picked ICU rotations because they're very busy rotations. It's a lot of work hours. It's really hard to self-regulate. It's really hard to actually say, I'm going to study on my own and then actually study because you're working a lot and you're switching from days to nights. And it's really hard to self-regulate. There are a lot of other habits that would get in the way on those months. At the beginning of the month, we gave them all access through one of the network drives to a bunch of resources on 12 different topics, nutrition, ultrasound, sepsis. They all had access to this. And we, I'm sorry, I said the beginning of the month, that's actually after one week. So at the beginning of the month, we just had them track their daily reading. After one week, we gave them all access to this. And then we randomized them to one of two conditions. It's important that we randomize because that way we can sort of say, we think this is not just correlation. We think that WHOOP actually is causal. It's what caused the difference that we see between groups. So one group got WHOOP and we, we told them, we explained what the WHOOP process was and we had them set wishes to study more and then pick their own outcomes, their own obstacles and their own plans. The other group, we actually had them use something that's, I think it's, it's very vogue, but the evidence base for it is not as strong. We had them set SMART goals. I don't, I don't know if you've heard of these, but there's specific, measurable, attainable, and so forth. And there's some, there's some reasons why that's, I mean, those should work. It's not a placebo. It's not a control group. It's a true comparator group. It was the same time allotted for both groups. And then we followed both groups for three weeks. And we saw how much did they read towards their goals week to week over the next three weeks. We also asked them, how much did you read towards other medical education stuff or med medical stuff? In other words, was it maybe, maybe you're going to read more towards your goals, but you're reading less towards other things. So it's just taking it from one pocket and putting it in the other. But what we found, you know, which was very consistent with our WHOOP research was this. Over the subsequent three weeks, the folks who were in the SMART goals group, the folks who were in the comparator group, they read around an hour and a half total over three weeks towards their goals. So not so much, but kind of what we were expecting on the ICU rotation. They read around five hours total towards other things. So it wasn't related to their goals, but five hours total. Now, the group that, set, that used WHOOP to bolster their goals, instead of one and a half hours, they read four and a quarter hours. So almost three times as much. And that difference was statistically significant, even with our small sample size. And the effect size there was uh, medium to large. So it was a very large effect on, on reading towards their goals. And how much did they read towards other stuff? Well, the comparator group had read five hours and the WHOOP group, they read five and a half. 
There's no statistical difference between those. But what that suggests is that this increase in reading that they had towards their goals, it didn't cost them reading towards other things. This time that they had found must have come from somewhere else. I don't, we didn't track to see where it came from, but if you look at the uh, implementation intentions, the if-then plans that they came up with, it was almost always some other distracting habit, whether that be Facebook or uh, watching television or gossiping with friends that they had set up as their trigger to replace, to be replaced with studying time. So it really sounds like, at least my interpretation of most of this data is, it's along the same mentality as the failing to plan is planning to fail. Because if you're not planning for obstacles to arise and what you'll do in that situation, you're more likely to revert back to your normal habits instead of progressing to something more beneficial. Yeah, that's well said. And I'll, I'll sort of zoom in on one part of what you're saying, that the in the moment is so important. I think people who haven't used Whoop before, sometimes when they come up with an if-then plan, they'll say something like, you know, if I don't read an article tonight, then I'll read one tomorrow. That's not how it's supposed to be used. You need to identify an obstacle and what you're going to do in the moment to overcome that obstacle right then. I like this. You're running a race and you're at the starting line. It's that obstacle comes up. This, in this case, it's the starting gun goes off and you have prepackaged, ready to go exactly what you're going to do. You're just waiting for that gun to go off. It sounds like the biggest mistake here is really not thinking out the proper obstacles that follow the outcomes. Are there any other big mistakes or pitfalls that students should watch out for? There are. If you're using Whoop, a couple things to know. So first of all, if it's working to change your behaviors, like a lot of other things in cognitive psychology, you're not actually going to be aware of it. So people who use retrieval, they don't think they know the material better. They do know it better, but they don't think so. They actually think they know it worse. And it's pretty similar with Whoop. So people who use Whoop, they don't actually know that they're more effectively following on their goals. In the study that we did, we asked uh, residents at the beginning of the study and at the end of the study, how effective do you think you are at following through on your goals? How satisfied are you with your study habits? And before and after the WHOOP, even though they were reading three times as much as the comparator group, there was no difference in their satisfaction with their self-regulation or their study habits. So it seems to have no conscious impact. Now, second thing is you should know that WHOOP isn't always effective. And if it's not, you got to figure out what was it about it that's not actually effective. And I'll, I'll give some examples. It could be that the action that I plan to take is not realistic or is not effective. So not realistic. I want to learn something. I have a, if it's my lunch break and I'm planning to talk with friends, then I will instead read a book chapter. It may not be realistic to read an entire book chapter. So you might want to, you might have sort of be biting off more than you can chew. So picking an, an action or a response to a habit that you know that you can actually follow through on is particularly important. Second thing is you want to pick an action or a habit that will actually make progress towards your goals. As a different example, if my goal is to lose weight and the action that I take, is, let's say my implementation intention is if I'm standing in front of the elevator, then I'll take the stairs instead. That's a great goal for health. But if my goal is actually to lose weight, it's probably not going to do it. It's, you know, the caloric expenditure of taking a couple of flights of stairs is really not going to impact my weight, especially if I don't actually stand by elevators more than once or twice a day. So you'd want to pick something that actually really targets the goal attainment. And then a last thing that can happen where people can get derailed is in the selection of the outcomes and the obstacles. So if you pick the wrong outcomes, the wrong best outcomes, you, you miss out on the, the chance to really motivate yourself. 
if your goal for why you want to learn is not truly intrinsic, it's not truly a meaningful thing to you. It's really to, oh, this would be so great because, you know, I'm going to look so good to my parents or something like that. It's not going to be as meaningful to you as something that's truly intrinsic, truly something that, that you're doing for yourself. And with the obstacle, it's also possible to psych yourself out um, and pick obstacles that aren't really the true obstacle. Abby could have said, you know, that her obstacle, she wouldn't want to face the fact that she's really shy. And so she picks something that's not really the critical obstacle. She may end up finding that even if she overcomes that, whatever she picks as an obstacle, it's not really helping her make progress to her goal. And what you have to do in those situations is when you use Whoop again, and it's supposed to be used recursively, you want to dig a little bit deeper. You really want to reflect on what really is it that's getting in my way. A lot of great advice. And I can definitely see how sometimes knowing which outcomes or obstacles to select could easily be misleading or distracting. I wonder if there are any particular methods for training that or noticing, self-assessing if that is not the correct obstacle or outcome to select. If the outcome doesn't light you up, if it doesn't feel very like, yeah, that's it. And you, when you fantasize about it in six months, I've achieved this goal and this is where I am, this is what I'm feeling. And it doesn't actually, you don't feel it. That's not probably the right outcome. And if when you pick your obstacle, it doesn't feel uncomfortable, you're not at least a little bit embarrassed by the behavior or whatever it is that's getting in your way, it may not be the right obstacle. And maybe you got to dig a little bit deeper because there's something you can self-regulate your behaviors. It's totally possible to do, but there's something that you're doing or not doing or allowing to be done that's getting in your way. And you need to frame it as something that you have control over. So it's not my roommate distracts me. It's I, I allow myself to get distracted by my roommate. Those are the types of things. I think there are a lot of resources that um, Peter and Gabrielle have put together for this. There's a, a website they have. I believe it's whoopmylife.org, W-O-O-P, my life. Listeners who are particularly interested in this could go to this and they have uh, an iPhone app. They have different handouts and videos you can watch if you're interested in reading more about their research. You can learn about there. And uh, Gabrielle's put together a number of specific tips to help with uh, the implementation of Whoop. That's perfect. I was just going to ask for some resources. So we have those now. I will put them in the show notes as well. And after this whole discussion, I feel like I need to reassess my entire life. <laughs> well, you may. I mean, you may not too. It's just maybe a, a parting thought on Whoop. If you're already getting the studying done, if, if actually your behaviors are following the behaviors that you want to have around certain things, then you don't, you don't need to do this. I mean, you don't need to bolster things that you're already doing with Whoop. I, I give sort of a cheeky example here. If my goal is to put on pants in the morning, I don't need to whoop about it. I'm just going to get it done. It's really, you use this for when you know you should be doing something and gosh, you're just not getting it done because life seems to be getting in the way. Well, I know you've given so much great advice throughout this entire interview. Um, do you have any last minute parting thoughts or recommendations for students? Develop good habits. The habits that you start early, they get harder and harder to break as you progress. And as best you can, there's a lot of pressure to put up the high test scores and get the nice evals and all the, and, and those are great things. But to me, that's not true north. That's magnetic north. And that works for some time. But if that's the only direction you follow in your career, you're going to end up slightly in a place that's not exactly where you want to end up. As best as you can, try to tie your motivation to just becoming the dynamite clinician that you want to be and how satisfying that will be and how meaningful it is to learn and to serve patients. I think if you can always keep that intrinsic motivation central, you'll be better off. Yeah, too much extrinsic motivation is definitely going to put a hamper on your motivation later on and possibly lead to increased burnout, I'm sure. 100% right. Dr. Daniel Sadawi Kanevka, 
Is there any good way for listeners to reach out to you if they want more information? Sure. My email address, you'll probably want to put it in the show notes because it's a really long one. It's dsadawi-kanafka.mgh.harvard.edu. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been a very informative interview. and I know there's a lot of value here for the audience. So I want to thank you for taking the time to come on and explaining your research and really giving us a good outline for how to benefit our studies. My pleasure.